Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehila Tunava. You're listening to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. Let's open with prayer. Avinu Malkeinu, our Father, our King Lord, we are so grateful that you have brought us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Lord, you send forth your Spirit, and that drives out the darkness. We thank you, Lord, that you have sent your Spirit into our hearts, causing us to cry, Abba, Father. Lord, we are grateful that you have sent your Son to perform the impossible. He has caused us to come into a right relationship with you and to repair the breach. Lord, we thank you that Yeshua died for us and that he rose again and that he ascended on high and that he sits at the right hand and ever lives to make intercession for us. Indeed, Lord, as we pray, we know that he uh, intercedes and that he hears our prayers. And so we pray with assurance, we pray with confidence, and we know that you hear our prayers. For indeed, in Yeshua, everything is yes and amen. Even, Lord, the prayers that are answered uh, in ways that we don't uh, quite expect. We know, Lord, that all things work together for good because we love you and because your love has been spread abroad in our hearts. And so, Lord, continue to raise us up as a people, as a people that are um, uh, dedicated to your name, that are uh, in love with your Son, that are enthralled with the Son, Yeshua. Lord, continue to fill us with your Spirit, with your goodness, with your mercy. Cause us to be salt and lights in this very darkened world. Lord, we know as the, um, as the end of the age draws near, uh, that your words have promised that... Um, uh, wickedness would, would would mature, but that righteousness would also mature. And so we want to be counted among the righteous. So we seek to do your will. Therefore, Lord, we hide your words in our heart so that we might not sin against you. Bless us as we gather together tonight, as we embark on another chapter in this study on the book of Galatians. We bless you, Lord, for allowing the Apostle Paul to pen the words to the letter. I thank you for the opportunity to uh, put together a commentary and share it with the, uh, the the other Torah students that are joined with me tonight. Lord, I'm humbled, and I ask that you'll um, uh, give me recollection of the things that I've studied in preparation for tonight's lesson. I pray that you'll bless each and every student, that you'll give them a, a greater capacity to comprehend and to retain, and to be able to take these things and um, share them with others. 
Lord, we know that um, you have called us to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. So let us not be ashamed, for indeed uh, we are not ashamed of the good news, for it is the power of salvation unto the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so we thank you for the opportunity to share Yeshua with whomever will listen. Help us, Lord, to be ambassadors for your great name. And we'll be careful, Lord, to thank you in all of these things. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. Let's date stamp our recording tonight. Um, it is July 2nd, 2016. For most of you, for probably for the good majority of you who are listening to my commentary. However, truly, where I'm at on my side of the world in Asia, it's actually um, already Wednesday morning, uh, July the 3rd. And this is, as I mentioned, a commentary to the book of Galatians. We are now on week 35. For those of you who are a little new to the study, uh, let me just give you quick 30-second logistics. Um, this is uh, it's a live Torah study, live Bible study. We meet every Tuesday evening, Central Standard Time, from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. So uh, just, just use your internet and, and figure out uh, what time frame that is for you. You're certainly welcome to join. It's free for everyone. Uh, go to my website at uh, tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H. And from my homepage, in fact, for the students in the class, uh, I should be able to see my screen now. Um, go to my homepage at tetzetorah.com. And um, from the homepage, you can click on either the... There should be a golden banner running across the very top of my webpage, Live Internet Galatians Study. You can click on that, or you can click on the Galatians Commentary link. But um, click on the page, and it'll give you details on on the Live Internet Study, uh, the current notes that we're studying, and it'll give you an opportunity to subscribe and get access to the weekly notes and the Skype link. We meet each week by Skype, and... Um, you don't even really have to have a Skype account to join, but click on the the link, the link and follow the details there. We'd love to have you come out and join us. If you're not able to join live, that's okay. You can watch my website for the uh, audio notes, the audio studies. Uh, I record each study, and usually about a day or two later after editing, then I just post it to my website. And as I mentioned, we're on week 35, so if you hit the site right now, you'll see that there's about 34 different um, audio studies there. Each one is about an hour long. Lastly, before we get started with some liturgy, um, for those of you who are familiar with iTunes, I upload the audio commentary to iTunes as a podcast. So um, you're welcome to head on over to iTunes if you have that on your computer. Head on over to iTunes and either search for my name, R.L. Hanavi, or you can search for Galatians, or, or Apostle Paul, or Torah, or any other various kind of Hebraic terms, and you should be able to find my um, commentaries there. Okay, let's jump into some liturgy. For uh, those of you who are in the class, I hope you're seeing my screen. Um, I've got the uh, liturgy that we've been selecting for this particular unit, the section that we're in. We're in section 8, topic number 8, which is uh, the topic entitled Shomer Mitzvot, Torah observance. And so for this particular section, I've been using the passage, the familiar um, promise out of the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, verse 22 through 28. And um, this is such a wonderful promise made to corporate Israel. Of course, it's a future promise. It's a future promise. Israel is in timeout. She's in exile. 
And the prophet is assuring her that God has not given up on her. Despite her wickedness, despite her unfaithfulness, God is faithful. Amen? And so God is going to bring her out of exile and return her to the land, but he's not just going to do that. He's going to do something else. He's going to um, cleanse her of her filth, wash her clean, put a new spirit within her, um, replace the heart of stone with the heart of flesh, and this will cause her to walk into his ways. Something really she hasn't been able to do corporately because of her um, blindness to the truth. Of course, much of this is intended for corporate Israel, and therefore much of it is still future. Because we know in the 21st century, corporate Israel, national Israel, still is blinded to Yeshua. They don't know yet. They don't yet know their Messiah. But the remnant, the remnant has turned. And the remnant consists of Jew and Gentile. So without getting ahead of myself, we're going to read the Ezekiel passage, and then we're going to turn to a passage in the book of Galatians, and it's a familiar passage out of chapter 5. And the reason I join these two together is because according to the Ezekiel passage, if you read it at face value and you're a Jew, if you read it at face value, or if you're a Gentile, but since it was written to uh, national Israel before, uh, say, the times of the uh, of Yeshua, um, then it was uh, more natural to uh, associate it with a Jewish Israel than, say, Gentile Israel. But if you're a Jew and you're reading through the book of Ezekiel, and uh, you read these passages, you're going to naturally um, take God at his word and believe that if God fills you with the Spirit, then it will cause you to walk into his ways. In other words, you got, you're, not going to, you're not going to go away from Torah. You're going to go in the other direction. You're going to run towards Torah. Because as you run towards God, as you move towards God, you move towards covenant obedience and covenant faithfulness. And yet, when we read the book of Galatians, it's quite common to hear... Christian theology teach that the book of Galatians is Paul's letter to warn Gentile Christians away from keeping Torah. In fact, one of the verses that we're going to read tonight in our liturgy supposedly is Paul warning any Christian that if they become circumcised that they are debtor to the, to the whole law. And since it stands to reason that Paul is warning Gentiles away from circumcision in the book of Galatians, therefore he must be warning them away from Torah obedience. So, in a word, for the most part, standard Christian theology has these two passages at odds with one another. And yet, as a Bible teacher, I don't find how that's tenable. I don't, I don't find that the, how that's a warranted um, interpretation. So, let's just read the liturgy, and uh, we'll talk about Torah observance tonight. That is going to be the topic of our study tonight. Ezekiel 36, 22-28, I'll read it out of the ESV, and then I'll read some Hebrew. Starting in verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle you, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I'll give you a new spirit and a, I'm sorry, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, 
and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And you shall be my people. And I will be your God. Again, I want Jews and Gentiles to read this passage. Specifically, I want believers, I want those of the remnant of Israel, the Jew and Gentile who've been brought together in Messiah, I want them to read this passage and focus on the truths that are contained within this passage. These are truths that were spoken to national Israel before the times of Messiah. And yet we know that as the Messiah came and began to reveal the plans of God, that the truths of this prophecy began to unfold before her very eyes. She was now back in the land and yet, corporately, she still didn't see Yeshua for who he truly was. Yet the remnant has seen the Lord. The remnant has seen Messiah. And if you're part of the remnant today, that means that this passage is for you. If you belong to Israel, and of course, if you're a believer in Jesus, then that means you. Yes, you belong to Israel. Then this passage is for you. That means you've been sprinkled clean. You've been cleansed from all your uncleanness all your uncleannesses, you've been given a new heart and a new spirit is within you. But guess what else? The passage says that that God put a spirit within you and causes you to walk into his statutes and, and you're careful to obey his rules. So don't shy away from Torah observance. Run into it because it is who you are in Messiah. Let's read the Hebrew of this same passage. It reads, "Lachain emor levet Yisrael ko amar Adonai Hashem lo lemaandchem Ani osei beit Yisrael ki im lashem kadshi asher chalaltem bagoim asher batem sham. Verse 23. Vakidashti et shmi hagadol ham chulal bagoim asher chalaltem batokham. Vayudu hagoim ki ani Adonai neum Adonai Hashem. Vakidashti vachem leinehem. Verse 24. Well, did I skip a verse? No. Verse 24. And verse 26. There's that new heart, the Lev Chadash, and the new spirit, the Ruach Chadashah. These are the things that allow us to walk into God's ways. For indeed, as we learn in the, the book of Romans, chapter 8, Paul teaches us that unless you've been regenerated by the Spirit, unless you've been renewed from the inside, unless you've got the new heart and the new spirit, you cannot keep God's commandments. I think he puts it, he says, uh, for if you are in the flesh, then you cannot please God. So, um, let's keep reading. That's that heart of flesh, the lev basar that God puts within us, replaces the um, the lev ha'even, the heart of stone. And then verse 27 is the one that I'm really fond of reading. God says, I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. What's really neat about this verse is literally in the Hebrew, God says, um, I will... Uh, I will, you will be careful to obey my rules. And the Hebrew says, 
Tishmuru Asitim. Tishmaru, the root word uh, shamar, in that word Tishmaru, is really to guard, which is what we say uh, to be careful. So one version says, um, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and guard my rules, or guard to obey, uh, because we have two verbs in there, tishmu vasitem. So guarding, tishmu, shamar, the root word, and vasitem, doing, the root word asa, uh, in Hebrew, captures the idea of doing. But notice the two are stuck together. The shamar and the asa are next to each other. The tishmu and the asitem are both conveying this idea of guarding and doing, so safeguarding to do, uh, which translates in our ESV as careful to obey. And that's very important because I've explained elsewhere in my commentaries that if you don't guard God's ways, if you don't hide his word in your heart, which is the concept of guarding, if these words which God commands us are not on your heart like we read about in the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, then you won't do them. You won't do them. If you don't guard them first and hide them and make them precious, then how can you possibly think about obeying them? And that was Israel's problem of old. Her heart of stone wouldn't allow her to safeguard them. She couldn't hide God's words in her heart because the heart of stone won't receive the words of God. Only the heart of flesh can receive the words of God. And Baruch Hashem praised God that it's not left to us. We surrender to the power of God. And when He does that monergistic work, that special, unique work of opening our eyes, of softening our heart, of putting a spirit within us, then, praise God, the words of God can be written on our heart like we read about in Jeremiah 31, 31. And then the new covenant springs to life and then we see Yeshua for who he is and we can walk into the Torah. And the last verse says, V'shavtem ba'aretz asher natati la'avotechem v'hitem lila'am v'anuchi echelachem le'elohim. God says that they'll dwell in the land that he gave to the Avot, the fathers. Okay, let's turn now to the Galatians passage and see these two working together. This is an often quoted passage, especially within dialogues between Christians and Jews, groups where disagreement arises over the relevance of Torah. I'm fond of joining these types of groups, not so that I can prove to everyone that they're wrong and I'm right. I hope you guys aren't thinking that that's why I'm teaching what I'm teaching. Instead, I'm fond of joining these groups because I seek to... Uh, engender um, greater fellowship and um, stronger um, bonding between these two groups that for 2,000 years have been fairly estranged from one another. Jew and Gentile and Messiah should be just that, one uh, common group. Um, I'm not saying we, we all do the same things, but at least we should have a little bit more agreement when it comes to Torah obedience. And yet, there seems to be a lot of disagreement. Wouldn't you agree? Let's read this passage. Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. This is again rendered from the ESV. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit, submit again to yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. There's that verse, verse 3. Paul is warning them against circumcision. We know that. And therefore, it only stands to reason that the logic suggests that since he's warning them against circumcision, that he must also be warning them away from keeping the law. Right? Seems to be that's the way the passage is to be understood. We're going to find out a little later on that that's probably not the best way to understand the passage. But let's keep reading. Verse 4. 
You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. That's really the kicker right there, justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. And then the final verse, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith, working through love. What we're going to find out today um, in our commentary tonight, as we finish up our section on uh, Shomer Mitzvot under the law, or I'm sorry, Shomer Mitzvot Torah Observant, what we're going to find out tonight is that first century Israel suffered from a unique form of legalism. Uh, and Paul kind of hints at it there in verse 4 where he said, um, you who would be justified by the law. We're going to find out that there's just a bit more to that phrase justified by the law than you might expect at face value. So let's read the um, liturgy of that, the, the Greek version of that. If you're on the screen with me tonight, what I should have pulled up in front of you is an interlinear version. And as I explained to other students in the past, uh, I just pulled a snapshot. I made a snapshot of, uh, I think it's BibleHub.com or something like that. And basically, uh, what you're seeing on your screen is um, uh, some Greek, but also in red you're seeing some English, which is kind of rendered what I call woodenly, kind of word for word from the Greek, uh, which means that the English is a little um, unusual, a little choppy. But then just below that, there's the morphology where you can see the parts of speech, um, you know, if it's an article or preposition or noun, and uh, the, the, uh, the different... Um, voices and moods and things like that that Greek goes into. And we're not going to get really complicated with the um, the uh, liturgy. Let me just read it for you and then we'll jump into the study. The Greek says, Te eleutheria hemos Christos eleutherosin steikate u, I'm sorry, un kai me palin zugo douleas in a kesta. And verse 2, Ide ego palas lego human hati in peratem nesta. Christos humas uden ophelese, ophelese. I always stumble on that word. Uh, verse three, marturumai de palin panti anthropo pertemnameno, hati ophelates estenhalen ton naman poesai. Verse four, katergeteta apo Christu hoitenes en namu de kaiuste tes. I'm sorry, tes karatas exa pesate. And verse five. And the last verse, verse 6. And it's really these two verses, um, verse probably 3 and 4, that, that most commentaries get the most mileage out of. I testify, moreover, again, to every man, the anthropo, every man, uh, being circumcised, paratem nameno, that a debtor he is to all the law to keep, hati ophelates est in halantan nomen poesai. This phrase right there, a debtor he is to all the law to keep, is the part that most Christian commentators would warn any Christian against going down that road. Don't go down the road of trying to keep the law because if you become circumcised, which is a, a, a passage, out of the law, a commandment of the law, if you become circumcised, then you're basically essentially damning yourself to keep the whole law, uh, in a word. And therefore, Paul's going to then warn you that you're trying to be justified for, by keeping the law. Um, and that's where we get the hoitinus in namo dikaiuste. Whoever in law is being justified, the dikaiuste word, uh, the dikaio word group, 
dikaios word group, etc., is that legal term used in Paul's day to indicate God's decision to declare a person acquitted of their wrongdoings. In other words, it's courtroom language. And so we translate it as being justified or to be made righteous, dikaiuste. And so Paul is really having a problem with anyone who's using the law, the namo in the verse, to try to achieve this this dikaiuste or the, the uh, dikaiusune is what how it shows up uh, righteousness. You'll notice, in fact, in the Greek of verse 4, uh, those of you who are trying to be justified, dikaiuste, is really the same root word as a righteousness in verse 5, the hope of righteousness, elpida dikaiusunes. So you can, you can actually hear them, dikaiuste and dikaiusunes, same word group there. It's, it's the same word relation. The righteousness, the acquittal that we're seeking from God can only be done God's way. And that's what Paul's warning against. He's warning the Gentile Christians as well as any Jews who are still working from this mistaken notion that some form of ethnicity or some form of legalism or some form of righteousness or self-merit or uh, works uh, or any such thing will um, turn God's hand in your favor. It's only by faith. It's only faith in Yeshua that can uh, work to have God declare you as dikaiosunes, as righteousness or dikaiosune. So let's turn now to the study. Um, I want everyone to know that we're plugging along. And in fact, for those of you who are in the class, let me bring up the screenshot or my website. Um, this is the basically the table of contents, and you'll see that we're going to work our way through... We're probably going to finish this section tonight, Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant. And that's where we're at in the study. Eight topic sections so far that we've covered. And we've got two more left to go. Hopefully next week we'll start into the summary, which is going to be a very, very good uh, section to teach on. So hope you all are able to make it for that. And we'll probably spend a few weeks on that. And then we'll move into the promise, trust and obey, which is a short section, topic number 10. And then guess what? We're actually ready to actually get into the commentary proper, meaning start our verse-by-verse -verse exposition, where we cover not really every verse in Galatians, but we cover a select tough passages, as I call them, uh, verses that I feel warrant careful attention in this dialogue between Jews and Christians. So let's turn to uh, section number eight. And we left off last week on page 66, uh, we're actually, you know what? We're on page 65. Sorry about that. We're on page 65 and we're right around the middle of the, uh, of the passage. Uh, we're going to start in this paragraph that, uh, reads as our current expedition, but let me back up a paragraph so that we can get a running context. What we've been talking about, let me just read the commentary, uh, the commentary. What we've been talking about is that in Judaism, safeguarding and keeping the Torah since this is a section on Torah observant, Shomer Mitzvot, safeguarding and keeping the Torah is actually central to performing the will of Hashem. Indeed, as properly understood from Hashem's point of view, from God's point of view, not from ours, the whole of Torah was given to bring its followers to the goal of acquiring the kind of faith in Hashem that leads to placing one's trusting faithfulness in the one and only Son of Hashem, which of course is Yeshua HaMashiach. And so right away we see that if we understand the goal of the law, the goal of the Torah, which Romans 10.4 tells us that Christ is the end of the law in some versions, but that word end there, the Greek word telos, really should be rendered or understood as goal or, or um, 
the um, the uh, uh, the aim, the purpose, right? Not the end as in termination. God gave the Torah, among other things, to bring the participant, the covenant member, the natural covenant member in Israel, to bring him to the uh, conclusion that Jesus is Lord. The Torah acts as that tutor. It acts as that um, that conduit uh, carrying us along in God's truths until the moment of salvation is reached or birthed within us, if I can use that language. So it's evident right away that much of natural Israel has failed to meet the goal of the Torah. Wouldn't you agree? They have failed to understand the genuine and lasting purposes of the Torah because they, national Israel, by and large, has failed to accept Yeshua as Messiah. Therefore, they are missing the goal. They are missing the purpose. They're, they're straining at Torah observance, but failing to realize that the goal of the Torah is the Yeshua the Messiah. But by the same token... It doesn't stop there. What we're going to learn is that the Christian church, the Gentile part of Israel that um, came along later on historically, has also, by and large, failed to understand part of the purposes of the Torah. And it's that is that once a person attains faith in Yeshua, rather what should happen is that they should continue on in their Torah observance as they seek to be pleasing to God, as they avail themselves of the Spirit of God so that they can walk in the words of God. And yet for 2,000 years, for too long in my opinion, the Gentile Christian church has resisted, resisted that move of the Spirit to walk into Torah obedience, opting instead for theology that teaches that the law is done away with, the law has been relaxed in Jesus, it's been set aside by the Messiah, it's been fulfilled by Jesus so we don't have to do it, it's been nailed to the cross, we're no longer under the law, we're under grace, etc., etc. These types of theological slogans run rampant in Christian circles, and it's a shame because it sends a signal that God's words are no longer relevant, at least the first two-thirds of God's words. And again, from, from a covenant-keeping perspective, this becomes egregious. So let's read my commentary and see how this works out. Um, to the end of, re, of, of Yeshua being the goal of the Torah, to this end, the Torah has prophesied about him ever since, say, Genesis 3.15, and it continues to speak of him until its conclusion in Revelation 20, verse 20. In other words, from Genesis to maps, as one a uh, friend of mine, one uh, pastor friend of mine is saying, from Genesis to maps, the Bible speaks of Jesus. It speaks of Yeshua. And so the Jewish people who fail to see Yeshua really have no excuse. They really have no excuse. So it's in this way, in this capacity, the Torah itself acts like its etymological counterpart. Yara. And we talked about this last week, how that the word Yara is a root word. Actually, it acts as a root word to Torah. Yara is an archery term. This is according to Brown, Driver, and Briggs, just uh, Gesenius lexicon. Um, Yara itself is an archery term that conveys this idea of taking the arrow and sending it down the path, the intended path of the archer, towards the goal, the target at the other end. And if the archer is doing his job in it, and if his um, his bow and arrow set is uh, is um, in proper working order, then the arrow should be sent down the path as he releases it and strike the target at the far end of the uh, of of um, 
of the range there. And in my little example, the arrow is the student. The arrow is the covenant member. The arrow is the Jew who doesn't yet know Yeshua. The arrow is the Gentile who doesn't yet know Yeshua, but is walking in Torah, seeking the Lord, seeking to have a right relationship with God, and believing by faith that God will will bridge the gap, that God will make the way, that God will bring him into that relationship. And so what does God do via, via, via his spirit? Well, we read about it in Ezekiel already. God cleanses us of our um, of our filth, and God takes the heart of flesh out of us. I'm sorry, God takes the heart of stone out and replaces it with a heart of flesh. And that's new covenant language, people. That's new covenant language. And that's what the Torah is trying to do. It's It plays that role of of guiding us down the path to the goal at the other end. And what is the goal? Or rather, who is the goal? The goal is Yeshua. The goal is the Messiah. The goal is not Torah observance, per se. The goal is to meet the Messiah. Once you meet the Messiah, and once God fills you with the Spirit, God once God cleanses you, then you can begin to truly fulfill the law, like Paul says in Romans 8 again. Then you can really begin to fulfill the righteous requirement that the law demands of covenant members. Until that happens, your familiarity with the Torah is only so much intellectual nutrition, I like to say. So in my commentary, I say that um, this idea of, of yara, this, this uh, archery concept that I'm describing, is is best understood when we also examine the the Hebrew word for missing the mark in my archery example. To miss the mark is to chata, and it's the root word. It's the word used in Hebrew to describe sin. So it's interesting that in the archery example, to hit the mark is to to um, to achieve the Torah, to teach, to to um, to yara. But to miss the mark is to chata, is to sin. In other words. If you follow the Torah but you don't see the Messiah, well then, using the archer example, you're sinning. You're missing the mark. The arrow was shot, but it didn't hit the target. It didn't find its. It didn't find the Messiah. The, the arrow missed the Messiah. Therefore, you sinned. You missed the mark. Make sense? Okay, let's keep reading. All right. As our current expedition into the book of Galatians is so aptly demonstrated, obedience to the Torah has long since been an often misunderstood subject, both in the Jewish community and in the Christian one. And I say that from the vantage point of a man who knows Yeshua and still embraces the Torah of Messiah. And what I'm trying to, um, what I'm trying to walk into as, as a believer in Messiah is I'm trying to walk into the footsteps of a master. I'm trying to avail myself of his words, his ways, his truths, his spirit. What I'm trying to do is understand the scriptures from his perspective. Lord, teach me your words, teach me your ways, but teach them to me your way. I don't want to recreate um, covenant faithfulness in my own terms. I don't want to imagine that in Messiah I no longer have to concern myself with Sabbath and kosher and, and, and the festivals and wearing tzitzit and putting a mezuzah on my door and, and, and getting my neighbor's donkey out of my ditch, out of the ditch, things like that. I don't want to suppose that the law has been relaxed. Rather, I want to turn to your words. I want to read through the book of Mo, uh, the books of Moshe and I want to glean what you would have for me there. So Lord, Teach me how to be obedient according to your truth. And that's why obedience to the Torah has long been misunderstood. The devil doesn't want us to keep Torah. It's a spiritual fight, people. It's a spiritual battle. So just be ready for it. So the Jewish community and the Christian community both seem to misunderstand Torah to a degree. 
Jewish people misunderstand that the goal is Yeshua, and Christians, for the most part, misunderstand that, that the law is still relevant for us as Gentile believers. To be sure, as I say in my commentary, as we seek to better understand the historical context of Paul's writings in Galatians, I think we need to continually remind ourselves that in the first century, Judaism's their blindness was that the prevailing theology, all, uh, sincerely, albeit incorrectly, they believed that genuine and lasting covenant status was granted to Jewish Israel and Jewish Israel alone. So, in, in essence, this sentence um, that I'm highlighting for those of you who are in my class right now, genuine and lasting covenant status was was reserved for Jewish ethnicity, according to the first century teachings, as best as we can glean this understanding from the surviving literature that is available to us today. This would be, of course, uh, much of it would be found in the Talmud, which is the the mission on the Gemara. And uh, but this this can also be seen within the response literature, the 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 uh, the, um, the, uh, the midrashim and things like that. In essence, much of the rabbinic literature has this this theme, this sub theme, this theological foundation that undergirds. Uh, what they teach. And, and even though they don't come right out and say it all the time, we're going to see a little bit of it here in my commentary, but even though they don't say it all the time, essentially the theology that was driving their their um, understanding of the Bible was that Jews and only Jews were saved. Jews and only Jews had a relationship with God. Jews and only Jews were covenant members. Jews and only Jews could be filled with Ruach Kodesh, the Holy Spirit. Jews and only Jews um, had a place in the Olam Haba, the age to come, viz. heaven. And so let's see this um, played out for us in one uh, select uh, passage. But before we do that, let me just uh, check in with the students who are in the class tonight before we jump into this quote from Tim Haig. Um, I'm going to ask the students who are in the class if they care to open their microphones back up and to uh, weigh in on the discussion if you have any questions or comments or if I'm going too fast or if there's something that I missed. Uh, so for all of the students who are in the class, I won't use your names for anonymity's sake, but if you'd like to, I'm going to open the microphone up for about five or ten minutes. And uh, if you want to share or if you want to comment or if you have a question, you're certainly welcome to do so. So jump in. As Dr. Bra as Dr. Michael Brown would say, jump into the line of fire. So... Um, you probably don't see my screen right now. Uh, no comments. Okay, if you want to type your comments, that's fine. Anyone uh, have any questions? If you have, if everyone would just kind of sound off real quick in the uh, chat section, let me know that I'm that you can still hear me and that you've been able to see my screen for so far. Uh, one of my students says they're good to go. Uh, another one says good to go. Um, how about my third student? Uh, my husband and wife duo. Are you guys still there? Can you hear me okay? Can you type something over over in the um, chat section? Let me know you're still connected and that you've still been able to see my screen. Everything working so far? I'll just give them a moment. Well, if no one has anything to add at the moment, uh, again, for those of you who are listening to this commentary uh, after the fact that this is the podcast version for you, just be aware that you're invited to join us each week live Tuesday evenings, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time for this commentary to Exegeting Galatians. And we engage in a study for about an hour, and then we open the room up for a live Q&A chat after the study for about 15 minutes where you can um, dialogue with the teacher and dialogue with one another. We're on Skype, so 
Um, if you've got a microphone handy on your computer or laptop or, or a smartphone device, etc., um, join us each week. Let's jump into the study. Let's continue where we left off. We're near the bottom of page 65, top of page 66. Let's pull a quote from Tim Haig um, in his book, The Letter Writer, a highly recommended work, by the way. Uh, a bit technical, but um, well worth the read. Um, Tim Haig captures this idea of the first century um, deficiency that I'm calling it, the first century propensity to misunderstand the law and and their their position as covenant members. Tim Haig captures it this way, quote, If the extant rabbinic literature contains at least some expression of the general viewpoints of first century Phariseeism, then it's safe to say that the prevailing Pharisaic view of Paul's day was that every Israelite was secured a place in the world to come. All right. And um, for my students, if, if, you've, uh, if you're still with me, uh, make sure your microphones are muted. Um, that way we're not getting any background noise. All Israel has a place in the world to come, Tim Haig goes on to, to uh, comment in his book. For it is written, your people are all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. And that's the end of the quote from Tim Haig. There's a footnote to 57 my commentary that shows that I pulled this from his letter writer book, FFOZ Publications, uh, at the time. And the quote in 57, uh, uh, the quote uh, from my commentary is actually from uh, Mishnah Sanhedrin 10.1, as well as the Gemara of um, Sanhedrin 90a. And then what we're going to find out here in a moment is that um, basically there is a a quote from Isaiah 60, verse 21. And this quote itself is the, the maximum that, the, that the, uh, the leaders of the first century, the proto-rabbis, if I can call them that, they were actually essentially teaching covenant Israel that don't worry about a thing. Don't worry about a thing. If you are an Israelite, if you're a Jewish Israelite, then you have a place in the world to come. And then they're going to take their quote from Isaiah 60, 21, which reads... The, thy people also shall all be righteous, or thy people also shall be all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified forever. That's according to the authorized standard version. And what I reference is, or what I mention is that this is the verse that's really referenced in the Talmud above, where it says, for it is written, that, that the Talmud quotes, all Israel shall have a pace in the world to come. So essentially what I'm trying to um, convey is that Already by Paul's day, the Jewish people, if they were listening to what their leaders were teaching them, if the people were just kind of swallowing it whole, the people essentially held to this view that because they were natural-born Israelites, they were born with covenant membership, and this covenant membership guaranteed them a place in the world to come. In essence, to use modern terminology, essentially the Jewish people thought that they were born saved. So the Jewish people essentially, in the, by Paul's day, were believing that their ethnicity gained them genuine and lasting covenant membership. And they based it, in part, on this passage out of the book of Isaiah, which talks about, uh, thy people are all righteous. And they interpreted righteous, it's that same Greek word that we talked about, the dikaiosune. It's that same courtroom language in the Greek that Paul uses to describe justification and righteousness. So in, in essence, they believe that they were already justified by their ethnicity, by their, uh, by their um, 
position in the covenant with Israel. Let's keep reading my commentary. However, the literal Hebrew of this passage in Isaiah, thy people also shall be righteous. From the Hebrew, if we were to woodenly render it, uh, literally, it would say, and your people, all of them are righteous ones. And I'm filling in a few missing words because the Hebrew doesn't actually have the word are and doesn't actually have the word ones in there. So, essentially... What we're seeing is that the rabbis were believing, or the, again, the leaders, the sages, the proto-rabbis, they were believing that the prophet was telling the people that they are already righteous. And they came to understand that they were righteous because they were God's people. Right? In fact, the translator's insert of shall be all, um, you know, in, in our rendering from the ASV, the people shall be all righteous, that's actually inserted. It's actually not in the text. The, the, the tense of the verb of tzedekim, righteous, it's not indicated by the Hebrew. It literally says, your people are, or your people righteous ones, or your people the righteous ones. And so, we have to fill in the context based, we have to fill in the, the tense of the verb by the context. Now, before anyone starts running away with this and saying, but Ariel, it is future context. Just follow along for me a second. The future context of the passage lends to this choice of wording, of which I agree. So I'm not saying that the translators are wrong. In fact, if you look up this passage in uh, you know, a good number of versions, multiple versions, nearly every one that I consulted uh, just before I started the study night, uh, which is probably about 20, 30 different versions, um, they all have future tense. Your people shall be righteous. Something to that effect. And given the, given the context of this passage, which, if I were to pull it up for you, those in the class can see I've got... Um, uh, let, me, let me turn to the passage. You'll see I've got Isaiah 60, 21 pulled up. Um, and if we were to look at the, uh, the, the context of Isaiah 60, the entire context is basically the prophet speaking of a future restored people of Israel, restored to the land in their glory, restored in their honor, restored in their fullness. Uh, in fact, um, verse 20 talks about the sun no longer setting, nor they'll need the moon to wane. They'll have the Lord for an everlasting light, and the days of your mourning will be over. So we know this is a future fulfillment. It hasn't yet come to pass. And it's within the context that the prophet says, then all your people will be righteous. They'll be, they will possess the land forever, etc., etc. So, this is a future future fulfillment. It hasn't yet come to pass. But the sages, picking up on the literal Hebrew, that's the point I'm trying to highlight real quick, is that the literal Hebrew says, and all your people are righteous. Not necessarily that all your people will be. So the Hebrew seems to allow for this theological slant that presumes an already righteousness, an existing righteousness, based on something. So let's keep reading. Nevertheless, this statement of the prophets, uh, the statement from the prophet, leads the sages to adopt a position similar to the one listed in the Talmud, viz. Israel's exclusive righteousness. Israel's exclusively, right? In other words, it's not so much, if we go back up to the um, passage from the Talmud, it's not so much that all Israel have a portion in the world to come, like the passage says, rather, it's all Israel and only Israel. That's the kicker. Basically, by Paul's day, it's all Jews and only Jews are saved, which excludes the Gentiles. You see my point? So what would the Gentile have to do to get in? What would the Gentile have to do to become a covenant member? Well, by Paul's day, from the, from the popular perspective, 
from Paul's day. I'm not saying that Paul agrees with this, but I'm saying that the prevailing theology of his day was that if a Gentile wished to become a covenant member, some of the first things that they had to do was to change their ethnicity from Gentile into a legally recognized Jew. And with that context, we're able to read through the book of Galatians and understand that Paul's warning against circumcision is really a warning against taking on legal Jewish status within the Jewish community for the ostensible sake of becoming a covenant member. And that would be the misuse of Torah that Paul is warning against. That would be the misuse of the law. That would be the unique brand of legalism that Paul was combating in his day. It's not so much that the people in Paul's day were leveraging Torah observance as their entry into the covenant. Remember, the Jewish people, by and large, believe that they were born with covenant membership. They believe that they are born with covenant membership. And by being born as covenant members, their natural next step was to enjoy covenant membership by enjoying covenant obedience. So, in a word, the Jewish people of Paul's day didn't keep the Torah to become saved. They kept the Torah because they felt they were already covenant members. They, they, they kept the Torah to maintain their position as a covenant member, in essence. So let's keep reading my commentary. Um, uh, speaking of Israel's exclusive um, view of righteousness, their exclusive view of covenant membership, in this capacity, the sages of the first century, they imagined that Torah doesn't function to lead the individual to an imputed righteousness the way the pedagogue leads the boy student to the teacher of righteousness in Galatians 3.24. Instead, the Torah is given to the person who is righteous either by birth or by conversion. <clears throat> so you understand what I'm saying here? This is this is uh, essentially um, this is essentially a, a, a departure from traditional Christian teaching on what uh, Paul was trying to warn his Galatian readers against. Most Christian theologians would imagine that Paul thought that the Jewish uh, patriots of his day were trying to keep the Torah in order to secure their salvation or to secure their covenant membership before God. And so um, many Christian commentaries are going to tell you that the Jewish people of Paul's day kept Torah in order to be saved. And and to be sure, they, they thought they had to keep it perfectly in order for God to um, declare them as saved or declare them as righteous to Kaiosune. And yet, if we are to gain our understanding of Paul's first century theology from the uh, not not only from the Torah itself primarily, but also uh, take our cue from the surviving rabbinic literature, then really we can't. It's not really fair to say that the Jewish people of Paul's day were hoping that their Torah obedience saved them. It's better to understand that the Jewish people of Paul's day were hoping or believing that their ethnicity saved them. And cast in that light, if we use that terminology, then in essence, the Jewish people of Paul's day believed in, in a strange form of grace because they were born Jewish. In essence, they were born saved. So you see the difference? I think it's a very important difference. It's a very important difference because it helps us to understand that Paul's warnings against circumcision are not really warnings against keeping the Torah. Paul's not really warning people to stay away from the Torah. Paul's not really admonishing Gentile Christians 
to run away from the Torah, to to go the other direction, to fall into grace instead of falling into some sort of legalism. Instead, what we see is that Paul is warning them away from, warning the Gentile Christians away from trying to leverage some sort of legally recognized identity in order to be counted as righteous. So, um, in a word, uh, the the the, uh, um, the Gentiles had to basically buy or earn their covenant membership by becoming Jewish, not by becoming Torah observant. It wasn't Shomer Mitzvot that earned them covenant membership, at least not according to what we understand from the first century uh, sociological, uh, social-religious perspective. So, I want you as Bible students to go back and kind of try that hermeneutic out for a test drive, right? I don't expect you to believe me uh, by listening to my commentary once or twice. Go ahead and research it for yourself. Uh, see if that fits better with the context of, the overall context of what Paul's teaching. I think it does. I could be wrong, but um, I think it's a better way to understand Paul, and I think it goes a long way towards helping to repair the breach that still exists between the large, uh, essentially between the Christian community at large and the Torah communities at large. And what do I mean? Essentially, most Christians are taught that the law is not relevant and that Sabbath is no longer relevant, kosher is no longer relevant, the feasts are no longer relevant, etc., etc. And yet, by comparison, most Torah community members people who belong to Messianic communities, Jews and Gentiles who are embracing the Hebraic way of life, they believe that the Torah is relevant. They believe, and I should say we, because I'm a, I'm a member of this community, I'm part of the Torah community, we believe that the Torah is still important. We believe that the Sabbath hasn't been done away with. We believe that uh, God is still concerned with what we eat, what we put into our bodies, and that God still desires that we um, engage in the festivals, that we join him on the on Israel's calendar days. In other words, we still keep Passover and unleavened bread and first fruits and uh, our Omer Rishit and um, uh, Pentecost and Yom Kippur, Yom Truah, um, Rosh Hashanah, etc., Sukkot. We still believe in keeping these things. We wear tzitzit on our um, clothing and we put mezuzot on our doors. We believe that the law of Moses hasn't been done away but hasn't been fulfilled in Jesus so that we no longer have to keep it. We don't believe that the law has been nailed to the cross. We don't believe that we're not under the law, meaning we're not under obligation to keep the law. See my point? So there's there are some marked differences that exist between the tr- the traditional Christian understanding of law and the and the what we might describe as the now traditional understanding within the Torah communities. And it's my understanding, as I keep reading my commentary here, it's my understanding that the errors surrounding one's relationship to Torah can be corrected once a person resol- resolves the issues uh, surrounding identity and legalism and begins to understand the intended nature and function of the Torah in the first place and then faithfully applies it to their own lives. I go on to say that because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of Hashem the Father. Right? That's a, that's a very important statement. We're not going to be keeping the Torah under our own power. Rather, the Holy Spirit empowers us to keep the Torah. What do, what do we read? It's it's God in us, uh, God working in us both to do and both to will and to do His good pleasure. 
I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing what Paul says there. But essentially, it's, it's by the power of the Spirit that we're able to keep the righteous requirement of the Torah. Let me just pause and, and let you see this in, in, in action. For those of you who are in the class right now, I'm going to turn to Romans... I've got BibleHub.com pulled up, so I'm just going to turn to Romans chapter 8 and highlight uh, one or two verses. Uh, Romans 8 verse 1, there's therefore now, there, therefore there's now no condemnation. This is the NASB. Uh, there's, there, let's try that one more time. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as, as, Weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own sin in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now look at verse 4. This is Paul explaining the relationship of the law to us as believers. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. I think the uh, NASB, I'm sorry, the NIV or ESV actually has the righteous requirement. Let me switch versions for a second. Verse 4, yeah. Verse 4 has in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who what? Walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Do you see it there? As believers, our relationship to the law has changed. Yes, it has changed. Christian theology is correct. Our relationship to the law has changed in a drastic way. But it's not that, as a believer, the law no longer applies to us. It's quite the opposite. Paul says that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, but only as we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so Paul goes on to explain this in Romans 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But by contrast, Paul says, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And this is how we are able to... Um, um, Fulfill. Uh, this is how the righteous requirement of the law is able to be fulfilled in us as long as we set our minds on the Spirit. And then Paul tells us, he warns us in verse 6, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. And watch this. Verse 7, Romans 8, 7. For the, speaking of the mind of flesh, it does not submit to God's law. Indeed it cannot. It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's fairly plain to understand. If you're going to walk in the flesh as a believer, or we can understand the verse this way, if you are an unbeliever, you're certainly going to walk in the flesh. So either way, if you're what we call a carnal Christian, or you're not even a believer at all, you're not even a Christian, you're not going to be able to submit to God's law. That's what Paul tells us right here. Indeed, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, and it cannot submit to God's law. Indeed, it's not possible, God, uh, Paul tells us. And then he goes on to tell us that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So, we don't want to be in the flesh. We want to be in the Spirit. So, going back to my commentary, as we close out... Um, Let's see, am I going to be able to close it out tonight? Wow, I've got a little bit more here than I anticipated. Nope, looks like we're going to turn this into part four. Um, but let's finish out this section and uh, uh, the, at least the thought. So, going back to my commentary, um, I left off in this paragraph where we're talking about the relationship of the law and the believer. And it should not be presumed that um, we're going to be 
keeping the Torah under the flesh. I go on to say it should not be presumed that it could be obeyed, speaking of the Torah. It can't be, be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for Hashem or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been, and it always will be. And when I say it's a matter of the heart, go back and look up Deuteronomy 6.6. 6. Go back and look up Deuteronomy 10.16, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Look up Jeremiah 31.33, our familiar New Covenant or New Testament passage. Read Ezekiel 36.25-27 again, where God talks about writing His laws on our heart or putting a new heart within us. Read Romans 7.22. Read Hebrews 8.10, and then read Hebrews 10.16, which the Hebrews passages are actually quotes from the Jeremiah 31 passage. Let's keep reading my commentary. It's my desire that this commentary to the book of Galatians will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. Let's read uh, one of those passages that I mentioned. Let's pull Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 10, 12-16, out of the NIV reads, quote, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, there's that election language, he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Now look at this, people. Listen, please listen. What does Moshe say? Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. End quote. That last sentence that Moshe speaks of in Deuteronomy, circumcise your hearts, is that not New Covenant language? Is that not New Testament verbiage? Circumcision of the heart is not a New Testament feature. Rather, circumcision of the heart is something that God has expected of his people from as far back as the book of Deuteronomy. So, for at least 3,500 years or so, God has been speaking of circumcision of the heart to his people Israel. They have no excuse. They have no excuse. So the Christian shouldn't imagine that circumcision of the heart is something that started in Jesus. The new covenant didn't spring to life when Jesus came. Rather, and let me say my words carefully, as long as someone allowed God to circumcise their hearts way back in the times of Moshe, allowed God to write his words on their heart, take out the heart of stone, like Ezekiel talks about, and replace it with a heart of flesh and put his spirit within them. That's when new covenant springs to life for that individual. Moshe had a circumcised heart. Moshe was, was, was called a man after... Was, well, that was David that was called a man after God's own heart, but Moshe was called a friend of God. Abraham was called a friend of God. Moshe spoke to God face to face. Panim el panim, the Hebrew says. Moshe saw the Messiah. We know about that because we can read about it in the book of Hebrews. Therefore, Moshe had a circumcised heart. Moshe knew what he was talking about. He wasn't speaking nonsense. He knew that the only way to really have a right relationship with God was to allow God to soften the heart, circumcise the heart, 
fill that individual with their spirit and bring them to her into a genuine covenant relationship that would result in Torah obedience. And so as I close this commentary tonight on Shomer Mitzvot, Torah observance, I want to stay it, state it this way in my commentary. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior. You can back and, go back and read the Jeremiah 31, 31 passage again, where God promises through the prophet that he would write the word that, that he would write the words on their heart, which is the verbiage that's carried over into the Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10 passages. Right? I may just pull it up and read it. Because the Torah is written on our hearts, all of us who name the name of Yeshua, that's Jew and Gentile and Messiah, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. It's not meant to be shunned. It's not meant to be shelled. It's not meant to be suppressed. It's not meant to be spoken of as done away with. It's not meant to be spoken of as fulfilled so that we don't have to do it. It's not spoken of, it's not meant to be spoken of as nailed to the cross. It's not meant to be spoken of as done away with in favor of being under the grace of Christ or something to that effect in, in the law of Christ in Christo. That's not the, the, the role of the Torah in life of a believer. It's meant to be followed to the best of our ability. Of course, under the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what I mean by to the best of our ability. We step into obedience and the Holy Spirit helps us do the rest. You've heard of this term called synergism. Yes, you have. Monergism is one working. Synergism or synergism is more than one working or two working. When it comes to salvation, God is the one who does the monergistic work. God saves us. We're dead in trespasses and sin. We can't save ourselves. We can't bring ourselves to life. God opens our eyes as blind men, and God breathes life into us. That's a monergistic work. But when it comes to sanctification, as compared to justification, when it comes to sanctification, it's a synergistic work. People, it's synergism. It's God and us working together. It's our will and God's will working in concert. It's our power and the power of the Holy Spirit. We just read it in Romans chapter 8. So for that reason, as I close, I say it this way. We have no reason for fear of condemnation, just like Romans 8 told us. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have no fear of condemnation. And the, to be sure, the Torah condemns those who are unrepentant sinners, those who are cold-hearted sinners. The Torah has condemnation waiting for you. But for us who are in Christ... For those of us who have accepted Yeshua, we've been set free from the power of the condemnation of the Torah. We have no fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. We don't have to worry about that. And that's why Paul can tell us, for freedom Christ has set us free in Galatians 5.1. So in conclusion to this section on Shomer Mitzvot, on Torah observance, consider this explanation, right? This is a teaser for next week. Uh, this Midrash that I'm going to explain next week is uh, going to kind of flesh out our relationship to two of the more well-known biblical covenants. And I'm going to give you, just as teaser, we're going to talk about the covenant of Abraham and the covenant of Moshe. We're going to kind of see this bigger picture of Torah observance as it impacts us as believers in Jesus. And so that's my teaser for next week. Stay tuned next week and we'll talk about that. But for now, let's close in prayer. And for those of you who are in the live class, I'll keep the... Uh, uh, Skype room open for about 15 minutes or so, 20 minutes or so, and entertain questions and comments. But let's close in prayer for those of us, for those of you who are not staying with me. Let's pray. Abba, I bless your name, and I thank you again for your spirit 
I bless you, Lord, because your words are spirit and they are truth. They are life. They are what causes us to, to spring up and praise your name, to fall on our face and worship Yeshua. Lord, we know that your words live within us and it's by the agent of the spirit that we can be pleasing to you. It's by the power of the Ruach HaKodesh within us that we can declare that Jesus is Lord. We thank you, Lord, that we have been given this awesome responsibility as believers, as salt, as lights, as ambassadors to take your precious word, even though we are, as the, as the writer says, uh, that this is, um, uh, 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 we, we carry this in jars of clay, um, our vessels are imperfect, and yet still, you work in us and through us to perform your good will, to perform your good pleasure. Thank you, Lord, that you have chosen us, that you have called us out, that you're calling us upwards and higher, that you are filling us and empowering us to be witnesses, that you're causing us to speak truth into this very darkened world, into the lies all around us, to speak truth, to push back the lies, to, to drive out the darkness so that your light may shine. Let the light of Messiah shine in our lives. Let Yeshua's life be the hallmark of our lives. When people encounter us, Lord, let them encounter Jesus. For indeed, we may be the only Jesus that some people ever see. So it's like the old song says, I think it's Whiteheart, the old Christian group, we are your hands, we are your feet, we are your people. Let us do your will, Lord, as you empower us to walk in your ways. And that's what Torah observance is all about. It's about walking in the footsteps of the Master. It's about walking as he walked and talking as he talked. It's about healing the sick. It's about raising the dead. Lord, help us to to know that this is the power that we have. For indeed, you promised us that greater works than these that we shall do as we go forth in your name and in your power. Thank you, Lord, for the students. Thank you that um, you are raising them up as, as voices, uh, not only to their friends and their family members, but also to anyone that they would encounter. So for that reason, Lord, I pray that you'll give them divine appointments, help them to take these words and uh, to rehearse them, these words of truth. Help them to know that these are what prepares us to be witnesses. Help us to go forth in your name. We'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. 
The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>